Hey, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time this morning there. And uh, uh, if you uh, were here last week, we talked about the discouragement that comes when we start to pursue God's calling in our lives. This question of what is God calling us to do? How is God inviting us into His work to change our world? This is a big question that will face a lot of opposition in the process. And, and as we uh, kind of go through this morning, just to kind of let you know what, where it's, what's ahead, we want to focus on the opposition that's going to come as you get close to the finish. And the discouragement that came last week as we talked about how Nehemiah and the builders of this wall reached this point where they said the work is too much, our time is too little, and the workers are too few. We can't do it. Let's just quit. We'll see as Nehemiah has pushed through that, there's even more opposition that faces him at the end. We'll see how Nehemiah's kind of own life is threatened. How there's, a, there's kind of a bounty on his head. He feels like people are after him because they are. We'll see how there's, a, there's an assault on Nehemiah's image and reputation and his ego. And how these rumors get spread. And we'll also see how Nehemiah's faith and confidence in God is challenged. But if there's, there's one kind of sentence or phrase that, that kind of sums us up, kind of get us all on the same page as we start here, it's this. The closer you get to doing what God wants done, the harder your enemy will fight to stop you. The closer we get, the harder the fight will be. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we see in verse 1, we see this kind of update on the progress of the work. Verse 1 says this, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that, had, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. See, he's about to finish the job. He's, he's getting so close to seeing it completed. And he reaches this natural stopping point, this kind of natural break in the action. And we know this with projects, with our, whether it's a home improvement project or something at work, there's kind of natural phases that, that take place. Sometimes you need a break for lunch. I remember back in the, when we were just starting the next project to kind of finish off the space on the other side of that wall for students and kids, we broke it into phases. And when a phase would be completed, we would stop, we would celebrate it. You could walk through and there'd be pictures taken and videos that would be shown to kind of celebrate what God was doing through us. In the same way, Nehemiah reaches this point where the wall has been built. The walls are done, but the gates aren't quite in it yet. And so it would be very tempting for him to stop. And this opposition that was, that was coming at him was only intensifying in this moment. And it's just interesting to look at how Nehemiah struggles to finish strong. That the enemy comes after him so hard here. But we know this. We know intuitively in our own experiences that as we get closer to whatever it is that we had set out to do, the challenges become bigger and bigger. There's something about that last 10% of the project that is so vitally important to complete it that's the hardest to get there. A few weekends ago, I've, I've got the, I was tackling my, my list of things to do before the baby comes. We're due in July. And it's a long list, and it's, uh, sometimes things tend to get added to it more than taken away. And one of these things on this list was, had to do with our front porch. It needed paint, it needed something, because our front porch was not functional. Our front porch was this very thin slab of concrete that you couldn't fit a chair in. As you drove by from the curb, it looked like a nice front porch, but it served no purpose. 
There's these big four by four beams that go up to the, to the roof of the porch. And then there's this railing that goes across it. And you put a chair there and my knees at least are in that railing. And so it serves no purpose. It serves no point. I was angry. I was mad. So on that Saturday, I decided to remove the railing. It was a fun project. It took about 10 minutes. Got to use some of my favorite tools. I used the Sawzall. Sawzall is like a machine gun, but instead of a barrel for a gun, it's got a saw blade. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun to use that. So I cut it off here and there and on the other side. And then there's these 2 by 4 boards up against the 4 by 4 post. And so I get some other fun tools. Get my hammer, get a flat bar, and kind of pry this sucker off and throw it away. And I feel like, feel like I've really got something done because as soon as I got that done, I now had a workable, usable front porch. I brought my chair out. I sat down. I went and got a book because I'm a nerd. And I sat on the front porch for the rest of the morning and read. And in my mind, the job was done. Except for these minor details. Because where those two-by-fours were that I didn't remove, now there's exposed wood that's rough, that needs paint, that looks like a mess. There's probably clippings and shavings of wood on the concrete. It wasn't done as it should be, but in my mind it was. You know, as I was finishing up my master's, I had this big uh, project, this big paper to write. And uh, it, it was really, really, really good if you had insomnia uh, to read it. But this project that I was finishing up, I spent all this time on, and I would send a draft to my advisor, and he would reply back, you know, you know, you need to do this, you need to change this, this is weak, or whatever it is. And finally I got to a point where I'd sent in a draft, and he said, hey, the content looks great, you've done really good work here, you just need to make these few edits and change your formatting and resolve some errors there, and you're done, and you're finished. And if you've ever done an academic paper or if you're in college now, you know that with citations and formatting and margins, it's kind of a headache and it's, it's way more complicated than it should be. But this is part of the process of doing it. But when I got that email, all I heard was, it looks like you've done a really good job, it's good work here, and that's where it stopped until it picked back up with, and you're done. And so what should have taken like a day, taken a couple hours to read through this and make some changes... I drugged till my deadline, which was like a week or two away. Because I wasn't really, for whatever reason, wanting to finish that project. You do this. I do this. When we do that fun job called painting. If anyone likes to paint a room, I've got job and work for you that you walls that you can paint to your heart's content. But we sit there, we put one coat of paint on, and then we have this inner dialogue with ourselves, or maybe with our spouse or somebody that's helping us, where we start to talk ourselves out of doing a second coat. You know, we know that a second coat won't take as long. We know how much better the wall will look with a second coat. We know that if we don't do a second coat, we're going to be staring at this wall for years to come, thinking about how we should have done a second coat. But we, it's like razor thin on the edge of whether or not we're going to do it. And it's like an intense internal dialogue. Or maybe that's just me. Maybe for you with painting, it's the trim work. You know, you pull off the tape and you're like, you realize what a mess it is and you have to get the little brush and hold your hand, your hand's going to cramp and you got to move the ladder and all this stuff. And you don't want to do that and you think to yourself, ah, it looks okay. I won't notice it. But every time you walk in that room, that's the first thing you see. Maybe for you, you uh, coach Little League or remember this when you were in Little League or softball and how, how hard it was to teach kids to run through first base. For whatever reason, they don't want to do that. They don't want to take that and commit to running through that. They run, 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 and then slam on the brakes, stopping there like, like Wile E. Coyote that's on first base. Or maybe, you know, since it's race day, we think about uh, what happened uh, five years ago or so when Marco Andretti 
the son of Michael Andretti. He's a rookie. His dad is kind of known as the best driver never to win the 500. And so he's leading on the final lap, and he comes around turn four, and for whatever reason, he lets off the gas. I don't know if he was trying to make sure he was going to not put it in the wall or what, but he lets off the gas, and Sam Hornish Jr. comes around, passes him right there at the checker line for one of the closest finishes in 500 history. Or, of course, last year, J.R. Hildebrand is leading. He's kind of... This gamble on mileage and gas has paid off, and he finds himself in the, in the lead in the last lap, and he's coming around turn four, he's running on fumes, and for whatever reason, he lets the car go up a little bit into where there's not as good traction, and he puts it in the wall, and he kind of limps across the finish line in second place behind Dan Weldon. It's hard to finish strong. It's hard to finish well. And when we don't finish strong, when we don't finish well, all that hard work can sometimes go to waste. All that what we did and all the effort we put into goes for naught. But why do we fail? Why is it that we, we do this? Maybe for you it's because you kind of get overwhelmed at the bigness of it. You had this big plan, this big vision, this big dream to change your world, and you get started, and then all of a sudden you don't really know what the next step is. Or you just kind of get lost in the details. Maybe in January you said, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover this year. And you are here close to halfway through the year and you're not halfway through your Bible reading plan. Maybe for you, you made a commitment that for the summer, which is like two days old for some of the students that got released from school, you've said you're going to start every morning with your kids and you're going to pray and you're going to talk about Scripture and you've done it once. And you've already kind of gotten off track. You kind of get overwhelmed by the pressure that we put ourselves to the bigness of it. Maybe life happens, life schedules change. We see this with connection groups where all of a sudden the fall group that was so solid and so good comes around in February for the spring semester and sports schedules are different, work schedules are different, and all of a sudden that awesome group that seems so cohesive starts to fall apart. We fail for a lot of reasons. But specifically, when we are talking about God's calling on our lives, we're not talking about just a, a weight loss plan, or we're not talking about just a, a time, trying to be more productive, but we're talking about God has called me to do this. God has called me to change this about my life, about the world around me. We have to understand that we have an enemy, that we have opposition. Now, you can call this whatever you want. You can call this the devil, you can call this Satan, you can call this evil, you can call this sin, you can call this darkness, you can call this procrastination, you can call this low self-esteem, you can call this whatever you want to call it, but we have an enemy when we're pursuing God's calling in our lives. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, and I love how he puts it, it's really, really blunt. He goes through this, this part of kind of explaining why we do what we do. And why we live a community of faith that we do. But in verse 11, he responds, he kind of wraps it up by saying, So that no advantage would be taken on us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not going to be stupid about this. We're not going to ignore the fact that we have an enemy. Because when we do that, we, we give that enemy an upper hand. We, we do that, we think we can just push it away. But, it, but it's a naive move. And so whatever you might call this enemy... There's opposition into completing what God has called you to do. There's opposition in your life to finishing strong. And so maybe, maybe that calling for you is to sign up to serve here at Genesis. Maybe that's here at Noblesville or here at Carmel. We're sending a lot of incredible people to Carmel and more, more people are going to be going and committing to go over the next few weeks and months. But those, there's going to, they're going to leave a lot of holes here to serve. 
And so maybe for you, you realize, i got to step up and i got to serve somewhere. And maybe that's handing out bagels, and maybe that's messing with the, the, the sound levels at the tech booth or something. Whatever it is, you realize that you need to step up and to serve because we need help. Maybe for you, it has to do with, with getting to know your neighbors. I read a stat that 49% of Americans don't know their na- neighbors' names. Half of us, we don't know our neighbors. Maybe it's about being present with your family, that you are just committed to being a better dad or a better mom or or a better friend, and you are committing that whenever you walk into those environments, when you come home from work, when you show up at your friend's house, you're not going to be on the phone. You're not going to be responding to an email. You're going to drive around the block finishing that conversation. You're going to sit in the parking lot and leave the car running while you finish that conversation because when you walk through those doors, you realize you're going to be present. Maybe that's how you're going to change your world. Maybe for you, you can't even begin to figure this out. You kind of sense that God's calling you to something, but you can't put your finger on it. Maybe for you, that's because there's too much going on. You need to simplify your life. There's too many activities. There's too many things in your hands. There's too many concerns that you have, and you need to create some margin. You need to remove some things in your life. But this morning, what we're going to do and how we're going to end is with this wall. At the end of my message this morning... As we worship and as we close together, you're going to have an opportunity to declare what your next step is. And if you're close enough, you can see where the the 9 o'clock service, many people have already done that. Where they've said, I know what God is calling me to do. I know it's big and it's intimidating and there's there's some anxiety here. And so the challenge is, is what is the next step? Maybe it's to investigate, to ask questions. Maybe it's to try something. Maybe it's to, to, to... quit something, whatever it might be, to write this on the wall, to commit, to verbalize it, to declare, this is my next step in changing my world. And you're going to have an opportunity to do that here at the end. But before we do that, before we get to that place, we're going to look and see how Nehemiah interacted with this situation, this idea of finishing strong, this wall that's been down for a hundred plus years, this kind of laughing stock that Jerusalem has become. He comes into it with his plan to rebuild the wall. He has mobilized the people. He's gotten people on board. They've rebuilt it. They've, they've gotten so close. And he starts to face all this opposition. And so Nehemiah has, has a lot done, but he has some of those important details. You know, you can imagine how effective a wall would be without gates. He realizes that this thing that's unfinished, there's been a good work, but it's not good enough. And if he doesn't finish, it's, it's not really serving its purpose. And so maybe for you and maybe for me, that's a, that's a home improvement project. That's a scrapbook. That's a degree. That's a relationship that's been broken and you've allowed it to stay broken. That whatever it is, you've kind of let it be unfinished because you'll just take care of it later. You know, bucket lists and the whole idea of creating a list of things you want to do before you die are great and they're fun and they probably help us stay, stay kind of focused on things. But they also have a, there's a disservice there. Because when we create them when we're healthy, we do it with this idea that we have our whole lives in front of us to accomplish these things. And we kind of get complacent with that. And so Nehemiah comes to this point where he's got the walls built, but the gates aren't built. And he has this temptation to celebrate what's going on. He has this temptation to stop and, and to celebrate this. And to, to kind of pat yourself on the back. But our enemy, the opposition that comes, it has nothing to do with our plans. It has everything to do with our actions. You can make all the plans in your world and the devil doesn't care. You can make all the plans in the world and the sin in your life doesn't care. It's the actions that we take that matter. Uh, Seth Godin, who's a kind of a marketing and a leadership guy, um, he talks about the principle of shipping something. 
that you can create something, you can write something, you can do a product, you can, you can try to launch a program, whatever it is, until you ship it, until you publish it, until you let it go, until you let other people interact with it, until you put it out there, that is the first time it really exists. That is the first time it really even matters. Because in our heads, or in that Word document that's been sitting unfinished on our computers for years, it doesn't really exist until it's out there. It doesn't exist until we start to let go of it. And as we go along these projects, as we, we make these moves to, to change our world, we have to expect the opposition that's going to come. You know, I think about the, the, an example that, that we interact with often with connection groups. Connection groups, we really try to do a lot of things in groups. And one of those is we try to be evangelistic. We try to be missional. We try to allow our groups to invite in people to serve people as a group. And so maybe your group starts inviting people in, people that, used, that weren't, weren't in the group before. And they're invited in, maybe they're a neighbor or a coworker or something like that. And they're there for a few weeks, and all of a sudden you start to hear from the old members how the group just isn't quite the same. You're going to face opposition. Maybe during the Super Bowl you heard about this human trafficking uh, issue, this epidemic, this horrible, horrible problem where people are bringing in often young girls to large sporting events like the Super Bowl and, and other large gatherings and selling these girls into sex selling these these often minors to have sex with men and how this is a big issue and maybe you got on board and you got involved you signed petitions you went and served you tried to raise advocacy and awareness and you did all that great stuff back when the super bowl was here but now it's gone and you don't really know how to take another step into that because it's only when you make yourself useful when you make yourself vulnerable when you make yourself available that things happen and when things happen you get opposition we have to get off the bench we have to take that step. We have to, that step. We have to put ourselves out there. We have to expose ourselves to critics. We have to ex- expose ourselves to challenges. We have to expose ourselves to distractions, to those that are going to discredit us, because we realize that sitting here, we're not really changing anything. But as we do that, the enemy is going to do two things. Two things are going to come at you to, to get you off track. And the first one is that you're going to be distracted. The enemy is going to try to distract you. See, Nehemiah and you and are moving towards this thing, this project that God has called us, and there's going to be something else that comes up. There's going to be something else that, that, that kind of gets your attention because the strategy of the opposition is not to get you to quit. It's to get you to do something else. It's to get you redirected. It's often very subtle. It's often something that's very valuable, that's worth your time, that's important, but it's a distraction. I use this example with students. Uh, and if you have a teenager, you would understand that sometimes their rooms get a little messy. I know that's a shocker, but there's, sometimes there's clothes on top of clothes and then like food and dirty plates and then more clothes and books and whatever else. And like there's rabbits living in there because it's so bad. Uh, but, but teenagers all have mess, messy rooms and they'll have to be forced to clean the room. And adults, maybe this is like cleaning out the attic or the garage for you, where you reach a point where you've started to organize things and things are almost even more chaotic now because you're moving things around. But then you find something that distracts you, that gets you off track. Maybe it's a yearbook. It's a photo album, an old toy, an old book. Maybe it's uh, something that, that means something that's very, very important to you, but it distracts you from the work that's going on right here. We're going to be distracted by things that are important. You're going to start to think about how me being generous with others and with the church or with those in need, well, that money could really go to paying these bills. You know, you, you're going to be surprised and maybe shocked how important laundry gets and how important it is for you to do the things that, that we do on a daily basis that are required of us, but that serve as distractions that get us off base. 
You're going to think about how hard it's going to be to get your kids on that new routine. How hard it's going to be to get, to get that, to spend that time serving and how that time can be spent elsewhere, doing things that you enjoy. There's going to be distractions that come. We see this in verse 2 of chapter 6 in Nehemiah. Sambalat and Gashem sent, sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And so Nehemiah is being summoned to this meeting. And it would be very easy for him, I think we can understand that when leaders of other cities and you know, generals of other armies invite us to a meeting, it makes us feel good. Nehemiah can easily feel like, I've arrived, I've finally been respected by these people, I'm kind of equals to them, I'm going to go and have a talk, I'm going to go and have, a, have an opportunity to share what's going on. But, but the thing is, is where they're asking him to go is quite a distance away from Jerusalem. It's actually to the northwest, and it's, uh, it's in neutral territory, but it's in neutral territory that is between these two guys' cities. So it's not like he's going for dinner and a light conversation. He's going in a place where, where his very life is in danger. This could be an assassination attempt. This could be a time to capture him. But Nehemiah realizes that these two guys are out to get him. And he says this in verse 3. He realizes this by saying, But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? See, Nehemiah has this laser focus. Says, what I'm doing is good. I'm carrying on a good work. I'm not coming down. I'm carrying on a good work. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm carrying on a good work, so I'm going to turn the TV off. I'm carrying on a good work, so I'm going to close my laptop. I'm carrying on a good work, so I'm going to focus and be with my kids. I'm carrying on a good work. I'm not going to get focused on, on all these other distractions, this noise in my life. I'm going to focus on what God has called me to do. And even though that distraction may be good and worth our time, I am laser-focused on this. I am laser-focused on what's in front of me. In the face of distraction, Nehemiah maintains focus. See, Nehemiah was also coming off a season of distraction. If you just look in your Bibles at the headings of chapter 5, there's going to be something about how Nehemiah was faced with an issue of, of feeding people. There were people that were hungry. and There were people that were kind of being taken advantage of. The people who were building the wall were no longer able to provide for themselves and provide and grow their own food. And so Nehemiah had to, or those people had to buy food from people who weren't building the wall. Nehemiah had to, me- had to mediate this issue. You had people who were gouging those who had to work on the, on the wall for food. So Nehemiah is very familiar with distractions. Very familiar with important distractions. But he realized at this moment, I'm so close to the finish. I'm so close to finish, finishing this and doing what God has called me to do. I can't come down. I can't stop. You know, this is a question of boundaries. This is a question of understanding of maybe that email or that text or that phone call can wait till tomorrow. This is a question of understanding that my time with my family, with my friends, with God, and doing God's work and responding to this call is more important than anything else. It's an issue of boundaries. So the enemy is going to try to discredit, to distract you, but also he's going to try to discredit you. He's going to come and attack you in, in, in who you are. You're going to start to believe these lies that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not skilled enough, you don't have the resources, you don't have the time, you don't have the education, you don't have the credentials, you don't have the, um, you know, you're late to the game, and so you've already missed that opportunity. You're going to start to believe and hear and uh, hear these lies about how your project is not worth the time. It's not worth other people's involvement. It's going to be stupid. It's not going to work, and it's not going to take off. These lies are going to come at you really, really hard, particularly as you get really close to the end. 
The enemy is going to try to discredit you by making you feel inadequate. Uh, there's this author, his name is John Acuff, and John Acuff writes this blog, and he talks about this math equation that he lives out, where he says, one criticism is equal to a thousand compliments. And isn't that so true? We hear the critics. We hear the critics, and we amplify the critics in our mind. We could have a thousand encouragers around us, but it's the one critic that ruins our day. It's the one thing, it's the one passing comment, it's the one conversation, it's the one thing that we, we, that one tweet, that one Facebook update from our friends that just bugs us and ruins our day. And we feel discredited, and we feel weak, and we feel inadequate. Your opposition will be telling you you can't do it. I do this dance with myself uh, every five to ten minutes for every connection group I lead and every, every, whether it's with students or with adults, where I am absolutely convinced that no one's going to show up. Every single week, and my wife just laughed because she knows it's true. Uh, every single week, I had this thought to myself, no one's going to show up. For, for whatever reason, they've decided to bail, and I'm going to be sitting here alone with, with awesome snacks and a lesson I wrote for students that I'm going to have to get to myself because I've got nothing. No one's, no one's showing up. And we believe that we're worthless. You're going to be pitching your idea. You're going to be telling someone about this project that you want to start, this ministry, or this dream that you have about something. And as it's coming out of your mouth, you're going to be saying to yourself in your head, this is stupid. If I was this guy, I would leave. This is a waste of his time or her time and a waste of their money. These are kind of petrifyingly, crippling, scary moments where we don't feel like we're adequate or good enough because the enemy is going to try to discredit you. Look in verse 5 of chapter 6. So Sambalai is changing his tactic. He, he had kind of addressed the, the physical well-being of, of Nehemiah. Now he's going after his reputation. Then the fifth time, so he was really, really repetitive, Sambalot sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. Now before we even look at what the message was, this is public knowledge. It's an unsealed letter. It was something that anyone could read, anyone could hear about. It was, it was a protocol for this to be a sealed with a stamp and like, like presented to him so only Nehemiah would read it. But this is open and public to everyone. And so now Sambalot and these other uh, opposers, these other enemies are coming after Nehemiah's reputation by spreading rumors. They're spreading rumors about Nehemiah with this unsealed public letter. It'd be like Googling your name and finding out there's this blog that says all these horrible things about you, that you're a horrible person, you've done these illegal things, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of playing into our notion of, um, of self-respect and insecurity that we have with other people. You know, we all, I assume we all have email addresses. And in our emails, we get spam messages, Right? And often these spam messages are about some sort of opportunity that involves our money and us giving it to them, and then they give us something that costs way more in the real world. And we delete these and we move on. But on Twitter, there's spam as well, but it's a little bit different. On Twitter, when you get a spam message, it says, I can't believe what this person is saying about you, and then a link. And if you click on the link, you get the virus, and all that fun stuff happens to your computer. But what they're doing is, is they're not playing into some sort of financial game. They're playing into this notion that we are an insecure people. That people are talking about us and we have to go and find out and just and kind of fight back against that. And so opposition is coming and their rumors are going to be spread about you in the process. Let's see what the, was in the message in verse 6. Verse 6 it says, In which was written, It is reported among the nations, so it's not just me, it's a bunch of people, and Geshem, so another witness, says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. 
Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And he even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. If you remember from week one, or you heard in the video, Nehemiah was a slave. He was taken to King of Artaxerxes' court and was given this job where he had to inspect the king's cup for poison. So a good day at work for Nehemiah was that he would drink, take a sip of what the king was about to drink, and he wouldn't die. Didn't take, take a lot of brains, didn't take a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, acumen, didn't take a lot of skill to do his job. So Nehemiah is a normal, average guy. And now he gets this letter that says, people are talking about you and saying that you're committing treason. That you're going against this king who gave you support, his blessing, his resources to go and do this, and people are talking about you. And he kind of is trying to paint Nehemiah into a corner. He's trying to tempt him to compromise. Because it's not about getting him to quit. It's about getting him to do something else. He's blackmailing him. He's trying to give him just one option that seems easy to take. Hey, come talk to us. We'll, We'll resolve this issue. Because people are talking about you. He's attacking Nehemiah's reputation. In verse 10, we see where the, the things shift again. The black work didn't work, but now spiritual promotion of sin. And the Lord, and not, now if you run is God coming out. And not simple. I was, he was, it would be one piece where he's trying to get him to do something he knows he's not supposed to do. And Nehemiah responds in verse 12. He says, I realize that God had not sent him. I'm talking about Shenaniah but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalon had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. See, Nehemiah sees through this plan. He sees what's going on here. He sees that he's being attacked. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to take away his authority. That As he's finishing this job, he's trying to get people to go into the temple to save his life. I will not go. He says, I'm not coming down. I'm doing a good work. I'm innocent. What you're saying are lies. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to go hide because God has called me to this and this is what I'm going to do. But if we just took this part we've looked at so far and looked at the scriptures that we just looked at, you would think that Nehemiah was a very focused, very determined, very organized, very pragmatic individual who had this laser focus by some sense of sheer of will he was able to do this. But we skip the verse that, that's very enlightening. In verse 9, Nehemiah has this very simple prayer. In the middle of all this going on, he has this very simple prayer where he asks God, he says, Lord, now strengthen my hands. Because Nehemiah knows and we know that in our hearts and in our heads, we know what we're supposed to do. We know what God is calling us to. We know we're supposed to be a follower. We know that we're supposed to be committed. We know that, that, that we see things in our world that aren't right that we're supposed to change. It's very clear cut. It's very, very easy. We know this, but we have a hard time acting on it. Nehemiah knows what he's supposed to do, but he realizes that the weakness is in his actions, not his beliefs. That the weakness is, how can I go and do, not how can I go and plan? And so for Nehemiah, at the center of this, at the kind of the crux of this whole episode, is Nehemiah praying for the strength to go through with it. That as we're called to change our world, that the idea that it's going to be easy, that life's not going to happen, that's not going to get in the way, that things aren't going to come up, that distractions won't be there, that people won't try to discredit us, discredit us is foolish. 
And we need to realize that it comes down to a point where we're depending on God to go through with it. And so Nehemiah, in 52 days, completes this wall. A wall that's been down for over 100 years. He rallies around a defeated, broken, discouraged, depressed people, and he gets them to rebuild this wall and to lay the gates in 52 days. And I think it has a lot to do with verse 9, realizing that he has an enemy, he has opposition, and he has to go through with it. But we aren't like Nehemiah. We don't find ourselves in Nehemiah's situation. Nehemiah's experiences are vastly different than ours. Because Nehemiah, when he goes to God, he asks for this. There's some uncertainty. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus' last words on the cross are a phrase, a Greek word, it is finished. He announces this on the cross, that it is finished. And the word and the meaning behind it has to deal with a wiping out of sins, a wiping out of debts, a complete and total forgiveness, an unfair forgiveness. An unfair grace is what he's announcing. He announces that it's over, that it is finished. And Jesus' ministry of healing and teaching and dying on the cross and raising from the dead cements this as a new way of life. That the old way of the evil and the sin and the devil and the enemy actually having power is over. And that we find ourselves in this new way of life called the kingdom where we're trying to live this out here and now and we're trying to live this out through the week but is where God is inviting us to take part in His work. That God is in the process of changing the world and we get to partner with Him. That we get to take part in That it's going to get done. That it's going to get taken care of. But we're going to miss it if we don't get on board. My, uh, my grandfather served in Korea. And uh, I was about 10 years old, and I was having a conversation with him uh, that I think kind of illustrates this point where we are, kind of this in-between. And he was uh, an infantryman in the Army, and, uh, but he didn't see a lot of front-line um, you know, uh, warfare. But he drove a Jeep. He drove a Jeep for a colonel. And he would drive this guy around, and he got to know him. And he had some moments, he said, where things were a little hairy, and he wondered if he was going to get out okay. But for the most part, he had a, you know, he, he, was, he was pretty pretty safe, as safe as you can be in a war zone. But he said as the war was ending, as the ceasefire had been signed, the agreement had been set, there was a time that evening when the shooting would stop. He said leading up to that, it got kind of boring. And so one day, on the last day of, of the war, the last day of the, of the conflict that, that was going on there, they took volunteers. They said, we need to take some supplies up to the front line. We need a Jeep driver to go. Who's wanting to go? And my grandfather said, yeah, I'll go. And he said he went up there, and he, once he got to the front line, he said it was the only time he really thought he wasn't going to make it. That, that they seemed that it was the last night, it was the last of the fighting, and they were firing every round, every artillery shell, every rocket, everything they had on both sides were being fired. And he said, he said, I knew it was over. I knew the war was ending. I knew I was going home. But in that moment, I doubted it. In that moment, I, I wondered. And I think that's such a great illustration of where we find ourselves today. That we find ourselves to say where, where Jesus announced that it is finished, that it is over, that the enemy is going to be defeated. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But the enemy is still real and opposition is still real. 
It has zero power over us if we, if we uh, in the face of Christ, but there, it's still real, it's still there. And so as we go about changing our world, we need to not be ignorant and realize that we will face opposition and realize that the hard part is already done and we're being invited in. And that for all of us, we have a specific calling that relates to who we are, how we are created, and where we are right now that's about putting this into reality. And for us, and for Nehemiah, it can be a very simple thing, it can be a very big thing, but it's something that we're called to do. And all of us, I think, and I hope and I pray, are starting to arrive at this. And maybe for all of us, we need to pray, not for more understanding of it, but for God to strengthen our hands to act upon it.